0: Welcome to the Florence Guild podcast, a collection of conversations with business and cultural leaders delivering insight into future approaches to business and life. The following Florence Guild conversation was recorded live at Work Club Sydney, Australia's most forward thinking workspace. So, welcome everybody, and thank you for coming out because I know it's a crazy time at the moment. Most people are cancelling and it's just everybody's got the the flu or whatever it is, right? So thank you very much for coming. I wanted just to spend a couple of minutes. Um, there's quite a lot of familiar faces that know what we do very well, and I think there's maybe some people who are not 100% sort of sure about what we do. So I'll just give a little sort of two-, three-minute background in terms of what we do. Um, we are passionate about what we call connected human ecosystems and wanting to be the smarts of... Buildings like this or precincts from a people perspective. And what that means is that we want to try and connect people within buildings better. And that is our members, that is tenants, that is visitors to buildings. That's our passion. So when you look at a building like this, we think of it not just as this floor, but what can we do to connect everybody in this building better? And create that sense of belonging, if you like. You know, We actually want to be here, not because you have to be here. And given where we've been the last couple of years, that's probably more important than ever. Um, We work closely with landlords like Mervac who are very strong on the smarts of a building from an operational perspective. And we kind of go hand in hand in that and think, if we deliver on that, maybe we can create a building of choice where you actually want to be. And we use the physical places like this. We use uh, increasingly F&B. So that's particularly down in Melbourne at the moment. If you look at our older feet site, there's a retail space, there's the cafe space. George is laughing. He knows Uh, there's the Fryer restaurant. Um, There's a couple of bars. So there's a heavy part of F&B spaces as well, event spaces, and all of these physical spaces are really there to try and think about how do we connect with people, how do we connect with our members, how do we connect with tenants. And how do we connect with the wider public and community and how do we bring them into that precinct or building? So they're all important parts of this puzzle, this connected human ecosystem. And at least in my mind, makes perfect sense when we say we're going to open a restaurant, you know, just in this period of time. And when we look at Tuna Jaw Street, it's this is the first piece of hopefully additional pieces that are going to come to that puzzle of how we... Um, connect everybody in this building better. So that's the physical side. The important part of that is to Florence Guild. And Florence Guild is the name for the experiences that we are creating of how we facilitate these connections. This kind of audience is hard to drive conversations because we're just too many. Uh, but a lot of the conversations we drive are at a sort of smaller scale where it's really about how do we bring people to ne- together together share an experience, have an intimacy around that and feel more connected afterwards. Um, so that's what we are passionate about. It means physical spaces. I'm not sure what it means in the future. You know, there'll be added components on how we execute on this idea of a connected human ecosystem. Um, but I'm very grateful that you have come tonight and, and will take part in the Florence Guild. So I'm doing a QA with... Um, um, Jamila, Risvi, and I'll ask you to come up um, and join me here on the stage. It's thank you. I'd I'd love for this to be a conversation more than just with uh, Jamila and myself, but it's probably going to be hard. But if there's an opportunity, if there's something that you're burning, you know, you want to ask a question at some point, or you want to disagree, agree, you know, I think let's let's try and make room for that. Um, so again, thank you for coming, and thank you, Jamila, for being here as well. Thanks for having me. Jamila, you, you have a lot of strings to your bow professionally, and you, you've gone through a lot um, already. So I think we'll, 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 we'll hopefully cover quite a bit of it. Um, but in terms of your professional scope, Chief of Content at Future Women I'm just having to read this up. I couldn't memorize this. Columnist of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Podcast creator and host, as well as regular TV commentator. Best-selling author. And I know there's another book that you're working a lot on at the moment. Maybe there's time to talk a little bit about that one. Political media advisor. And the list goes on and on and on. And then um, your mom to six-year-old Rafi. And partner to Jeremy and you expiring an ongoing health battle with uh, with a rare brain tumor too which we may cover a little bit so let's sort of ease into things and start by talking about work sure if that's okay Could my you... boss
1: is here so everyone protect me if i say too who's much who's the boss
0: is that dj Is, is he? <laughs> see
1: dj's everyone's boss at future uh, that's women
0: exactly right. i was gonna say that's that's nothing new um could you tell me about the sort of work you're doing now and how you balance a full-time role and uh, with a portfolio media career?
1: Oh, yeah, sure. So, um, look, I think I'm someone who had a really traditional career early on in that I went to work for uh, the government in Canberra. That's where I grew up. And I worked... Look, I, I worked for Kevin Rudd when he was Prime Minister, so I didn't work full-time. I worked double full-time uh, and was very sad. Uh, mostly Um, but I had a really traditional way of thinking about work and I think I kind of took that forwards um, through most of the first half of my career so far in that I assumed you went into an office with the people you worked for in the morning and you came out very late in the evening uh, and then you took a bit of the work home and and it was only when first I had my little boy uh, seven years ago now and then when I got quite sick a couple of years after that that for me, work had to change. Work had to start to look different uh, because working at that point anyway, the kind of standard structure of work wasn't gonna happen for me anymore. And you know, I think we're all very tunnel visioned, right? We're very focused on our own lives and what our own lives look like and what our own working lives look like. But I look around a space like this and a room like this and can see that there are so many people in so many varied circumstances who Need work to work for them, need their workspaces to work for them, and the traditional way of doing things, especially post lockdowns not post pandemic uh, i don't think I don't think people are willing to go back
0: yeah, I agree um, you didn't start out in media though did you uh, no tell us about your first job oh,
1: yeah okay uh So um, my first job out of university was working uh, for, who was then the new Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd. So if you all like cast your minds back uh, to 2007 and Kevin 7 t-shirts, and um, uh, it was a time when Kevin had just been elected and um, was even more heightened than it is right now. I think there's always a sense in the country of excitement when a new government um, arrives federally, there's a sense of possibility and doing things differently. Uh, and at that time, Kevin was immensely popular. You know, I think he had approval ratings in the high 70%. People were just obsessed with him, Um, and I was 21 and wanted to work for the Prime Minister and was so excited, and I remember I showed up on my first day and was given the most boring work to do (laughs) and really put in my place, Um, but I got a real shock very quickly. I think I had to learn to work hard fast, Um, you know, I started, we used to start work at 4am, um, and we often wouldn't leave until after late line finished in the evenings around 11. Um, and we mostly worked 12 day week, 12 day fortnights rather. Um, and it was tough. We were mostly on the road and I think it was a young person's game because I don't think anyone else would have done it (laughs) to be honest. (laughs) You had to be young and a bit stupid.
0: (laughs) I was going to ask, how did you get the job?
1: well, um, I rang the office. <laughs> uh, so uh, I, think, I, I think one of the things I've definitely learned is I have gotten less confident as I've got older. You know, And I think a lot of us would see it in kids or if you've got young people in your life. Like I think you can be full of confidence at 18, 19, 20 before the world's taught you to not necessarily have that much confidence. And I was one of those kids and um, I had met... Kevin Rudd in passing at an event and he'd made this joke at the time and he said oh one day you should come and work for me and so I just took that very seriously (laughs) and uh, so I I, this is going to show how old I am, I looked up the Prime Minister's office number in the white pages um, and I uh, called and I think they got confused at reception and they thought I must be applying for a job that did exist so I just kind of went with it Um, and then I got an interview and then I got the job.
0: (laughs) I love that. Um, I always think when people say no, I just don't hear it. I just yeah. keep asking the same question.
1: How would you get your yeah. job?
0: Well, that's a long story. <laughs> well, this is not a job, by the way. You know, this is I'm just having fun most of the time. You know, except when I have to shop with some people. It doesn't happen too often. But um, yeah, I'm I'm very lucky. It's, it's, it's not a job. It's a passion, and and trying to figure out. Uh, I keep saying that, and it sounds a bit corny. It does. It does, yeah, I know. But it's... So whatever I say, is going to sound corny, isn't it? Yeah. But it is, you know, the whole part of how you connect and, and, um, you know, what we've done, we've done within our four walls, if you like, the first couple of years. And three, four years ago, we thought, what if we try and expand that to a whole building or precinct and Mm. try and have, you know, a little bit more impact? I mean, we're not saving babies, you know, that's fair to say, but still, when we do manage to connect people and there's some really good connections and experiences that comes out of that, I've seen that, you know, I've seen it within our own spaces. And I think there's a power in that and there's a ripple effect that goes on to your family, your friends, um, when you're enjoying being in in a space and and feel part of something. Yeah, I actually don't,
1: I don't think it's corny. I think we spend, you know, if you roughly divide your life into... You spend the third of the day sleeping, a third of the day with your family and friends and a third of your day at work. The people you work with and around and the spaces you work in really matter.
0: Yeah, and it's, it's no longer work, it's life, right? It's more, it's not a nine-to-five, in particular the world today. You don't need to work from nine to five necessarily. You work whenever and wherever. That's another story. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. But anyway, so back on track here, in terms of what, what did you learn in politics about communication? has stayed with you do you think
1: um that's a really good question so i spent um i spent a year working for rudd uh which is seven years in in rudd years uh (laughs) (laughs) and then um i moved and i worked for minister kate ellis and in that government she had a whole bunch of portfolios. We had sport for a while. That was super fun. Uh, and then we had early childhood education. Uh, we had employment. Uh, we had women. A whole bunch of areas that I've become really passionate about now. And a lot of the work we do at Future Women touches those areas. So I've gotten uh, very... Um, I've been really fortunate in that sense that those issues that I care about have carried through. Um, and I did a whole bunch of jobs. I was chief of staff for a while i was a policy advisor for a very short period of time um until uh, they realized i wasn't good at it um, but i was mostly working as a media advisor so i think communications and speech writing and media releases and how you talk to people um was very much the work that i was in charge of and i still i can still remember my communications director in rudd's office like there are still sentences he used to say to me that still echo in my head when I write a speech or when I'm writing an article for future women, whatever it might be. And it's amazing, I think, how those early jobs, you have those people who, who you're so impressionable at that point and you have those people that stick with you. You know, I remember him, him saying to me, people have all sorts of ideas about what they want from their governments and they're grand and they're beautiful and they're bold and what they think they want government to do for them really, people just want predictability, which is very uninspiring. But he used to argue that if if aliens landed on the doorstep of Parliament House tomorrow, you don't necessarily have a view of what you think should be done. I don't know. Maybe you do. Maybe there's some experts in the room. But um, what you want to know is you want to know what your Prime Minister would do. And... I can tell you what Prime Minister John Howard would have done. He would have called George Bush, and we would have nuked the aliens, right? <laughs> That's what we would have done. Um, and Kevin would have gone out and gone. This is a media opportunity. Let's talk about aliens, uh, and he would have had a great time, right? Tony Abbott would have gone out there, and you know, what was he? What did he say? Do to Putin? Shirt front them or something? <laughs> like it, that predictability is actually what people like. It makes people feel safe and. Yes, we would like our Prime Ministers to do more than that. But I, I have held that through, I think, in communications, that whether you're a brand, whether wh- whatever your organisation is doing, who, the people that you work with, the people who work for you and the people you are selling your products to, want to feel safe and secure. And I'm sure that applies here, right? People want to know that there's a sense of um, ingenuity and innovation, but they also want a sense of sameness. It's why people like showing up to a pla- the same place every day rather than working at 100 different locations. It's about saying, I know that face. I know that person. I'm going to walk past that desk. It makes us feel safe. There's real security and predictability and in sameness.
0: Yeah, and I think for us there's certain things that go... You know, the the solid timber, the leather, the scent that we have, there's certain small things that we kind of... that are always the same, even though each site is different.
1: What's it smell like? I don't have a sense of smell.
0: No, it's a... It's a scent um, that is in all our clubs. And we had a really f- fun workshop six years ago, something like that, where everybody in the team, which wasn't that many back then, uh, worked through... Are you, you know, serious? What Did be the you scent? all yeah. sit around so sniffing So smelling all kinds of things, what's on <laughs> brand, what's not on brand. And we came up with a scent, I which like has been our scent. You know, so it's at, it's at the front, it's in every club. So even though you may not know it or see it, you'll you probably recognise that scent. Yeah, right. So it's there. Um,
1: everyone's out there going inhale <sniffs> <yeah. laughs> the scent well, I'm at the
0: reception you can definitely smell it you, you also worked for Julia uh, Gillard right did you? Uh, I
1: worked for her government yeah. and for
0: her government what, when you look at Kevin Roth and Julia's leadership styles when you look back at that mm. which one do you prefer and why?
1: Uh, well I think I've given that away <laughs> um uh, Look, I think I think every Prime Minister, regardless of whether you like the policy agenda they're, they're going after, I think, setting that aside, in terms of their leadership style, um, they've all got pros and cons. Um, I think Kevin was and is uh, incredibly clever, incredibly ambitious um, and knew what he wanted and was willing to listen to ideas and to... Uh, he, he always wanted to hear the, hear the research, do more. Could we work on this more? Could we go a little bit further? Are we 100% sure we're right? He wanted to get things right, and I think that was really admirable. I think sometimes he was so focused on that, we didn't get things done. Um, and so there were a lot of promises by that government that weren't, we just didn't get to it all. There was this huge agenda, and there was no time for the, for the decisions. Um, And then at a personal level, you know, he was a tough boss. He was not, it was not fun to work for. (laughs) Um, uh, I I won't say it because it's too much of a public room, but um, all the stories are true. And there are stories you didn't hear in the newspapers that are worse. (laughs) He he was a rough boss sometimes. Um, uh, But I think had the best interests of the country at heart. I didn't work as closely with Julia Gillard, but I've worked with her quite a lot since. And I think we will look back on her one day and history will be very kind to her. Um, I think that government and that parliament got a lot done in really difficult circumstances and that was because she was a phenomenal negotiator. And I think the media were cruel to her and I think the public didn't like the way she got there, which was fair enough, but... I think that meant we couldn't judge her prime ministership on its merits at the time, and I think she was an extraordinary leader and in- incredibly kind and empathetic. Uh, like I think her team, I've never met people more loyal to their boss.
0: Thank you. We just had a federal election. What do voters value most in a leader and a government? Is that that predict- predictability? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think that's what I think that's what makes us feel safe. Um, What do people value most in a leader and in a government? Look, I think it's going to be really interesting, right? Because I don't think people feel like they know Anthony Albanese very well yet, Um, which I find fascinating because people said that about Scott Morrison three years ago, right? There was this sense of, oh, he just kind of showed up and uh, suddenly he's the Prime Minister, Uh, which is what has to happen when you have 10 bazillion Prime Ministers in 10 years. Uh, You can't know them all very well. Um, I think what... Albo will be really interesting um, to watch. I worked with him a bit when I when I was in government. Um, he's got a really strong sense of fairness. Um, and uh, he... You know, I, I think we've all heard the story now about him growing up in housing commission with a single mum who was very unwell. And, I, I, yes, politicians trot out the same story again and again. They all do that. But I think for him, he that really shaped who he is and how he thinks about the world. Um, and I do think he thinks to... He thinks about the most disadvantaged person and the person that in their everyday life isn't thinking about government, they're just trying to get by. Um, And I think that will hold him in really good stead. Uh, Having said that, I think this government has, and we all know this, has come to power at a pretty rough time. Like if you were going to choose when you were going to lead a government, you wouldn't say, I'm going to take the war in the Ukraine, I'm going to take a high cost of living and I'm going to take a pandemic that's still going. Like there's a lot going on in the world. Um, uh, that I think would be causing some anxiety. But we've got to remember, yes, we've got a new government. Parliament hasn't sat again yet since the election. That's ne- that's next week. So that's when they actually get to start doing stuff, and I think that's when you start to see the measure of a government is what they prioritise. And what they prioritise in those first 100 days of the parliament will show you what they really care about and what they think is most, most important. Um, and I know they've got, for example, um, uh, paying... Uh, requiring companies to pay domestic violence leave is on the agenda for the first week which I think is really exciting
0: thank you um, I'm interested in, in democracy and the way it, it this government's are structured at the moment whether that's I'm di- diverting a little bit here but in terms of how, how relevant that is because from a personal perspective I have certain views on particular issues that are not the same if I vote one or the other so it, it's hard sometimes to pick when you have different views on different topics. Mm. And I think it's, it's um, increasingly hard in, in an environment where change is happening so fast mm. and you're basically just voting somebody in for four years. And it's, um, do you have a view on that? Do you have a
1: comment? I, I think what you said is really um, quite an accurate description of how people feel at the moment. Um, I do think democracy feels like it's moving very quickly. Um, right now, especially in Australia, with the sort of the churn of of leaders. Um, But I think more broadly, I think Australia's system is starting to feel... ..that two-party system is starting to feel a bit outdated. Um, And I think there are a lot of Australians who look to Europe and kind of go, well, why shouldn't there be 10, 15 significant-sized parties or three or four major parties and coalitions are required so that, as you say... Rather than choosing A or B, I've got a bigger choice of people who not just would be in a parliament, uh, but people who could actually be part of a government. Um, and I think that move towards coalition governments is something we're going to see more of in Australia. We're already seeing it in some of the state and the territory parliaments. Um, the ACT government, for example, has a Greens minister. Um, but I think we're going to see it federally, and we saw that with the election of the independents. Um, we uh, saw that with the move to minor parties across the board. Um, the, one of the reasons... I don't know how many people are nerds like me and actually sit there and watch the election night coverage, uh, but one of the reasons everyone on those panels was not calling everything anything, and a lot of people were going, ''Hold on, Labor, Labor's won. Why aren't they talking about that? That feels significant.'' Uh, it was because the numbers were so hard to follow because most of those seats weren't Liberal versus Labour anymore. There was a third player in so many of them, whether it was an Independent or a Green or whoever it might be. Um, So I think our our political landscape really shifted this year and I think it reflects what you just said, that there are a lot of people who feel dissatisfied with I have to choose one or the other. Um, And I do think we'll see smart, opportunistic people start to fill those, those gaps.
0: Your next career move was uh, Mamma Mia. Tell us about what that company looked like when you started there.
1: Oh, um, tiny. <laughs> uh, we worked out of a, a, a little office that was supposed to be a shop front um, uh, out down in Piermont And I think there were, I was, I was hired to lead a very impressive editorial team of two people. Uh, and there were four of us trying to write stories every day. And I think we had a couple of other people in in sales and, you know, a guy that did our IT on the other side of the world. Uh, We were making it up as we went along, I think. um, at, At that time, it was a really strange jump for me, jumping from politics to not mainstream media but kind of more boutique media. But I was interested in what was happening there and I was interested in an organisation that was moving outside the mainstream media cycle. And if I'm really honest, for me, I think that was about working in Julia Gillard's government and looking at how she was treated by the mainstream media and the things that were written about her and the cartoons that were drawn about her. Like, we forget, right, we've got really short memories, but it was ten years ago that there were cartoons of her in mainstream newspapers at, depicted as a sex worker, you know? And like, that was the Prime Minister and that was on page three of Australian newspapers and that was just how it was. Um, I think we accepted a lot of what was thrown at her and, and that I think I was quite upset by that and I wanted to be part of a new wave of media that would do things differently.
0: What did you, lo- what did you learn about human connection and how to engage o- audiences that led to the phenomenal year-in-year growth under your stewardship? At my moment, yeah.
1: Um, yeah, so I don't know how many people are familiar with that website. It's changed a lot in the last few years, but you know, it started as a blog in Mia Friedman's living room And then, you know, there were a few of us hanging out in an office for a while. Um, In the three years uh, that I was there, we had uh, more than 1,000% audience growth. Like, it was just out of this world. Like, we went from being this little boutique blog to being read by hundreds of thousands of women every day and millions every month. Um, And it just absolutely exploded. And I think almost faster than we knew what to do with ourselves. And the team exploded as well. By the time I left, there were 120 employees. Um, I think it's about the same now. Um, And it was... I think I learned a lot lot of lessons about chasing growth for growth's sake. And sometimes I think I, I now kind of look at that and go, you've got to grow with caution and you've got to grow while you've got enough time to keep people in that sense of predictability we talked about before, right? Because those employees have got to feel safe when they're showing up to work every day. Yeah, it's got to be exciting and motivating and it's fun when you're winning, but um, they've also got to feel secure. And when you're growing that fast and there's a new person every day, that can be feel quite insecure. And I'm not sure that young, at 25 or 26 or whatever I was then, I knew how to look after people to make them feel safe like that. Um, so I definitely learnt something about... Um, how to communicate with teams and and how to look after teams during periods of growth. But I think also because we were communicating more broadly, you know, we were talking to millions of women, um, definitely started to understand about why people engage with content, why they read stories, why people um, come to a brand, why they feel they associate with a brand. And for me, that, that lesson of speaking to people emotion first, even if you're speaking to them about facts that people still read with emotion, that they still choose their products with emotion, that they still um, feel attached to something because of an emotional connection. I think that was a really important lesson for me because I come from government being very black and white about the world. And I think it was important to realize that people weren't always rational.
0: Yeah, they're not. Uh, What was the emotional connection?
1: To that brand? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Look, I think at the time, I think we, we were building a space that said women... I think, I think, we, I think it was a backlash of mag, against magazines. I think magazines had dominated... They certainly dominated my teenage years, um, certainly early teenage years, and women's magazines were such a huge phenomenon and they did a lot of good and a whole lot of bad. Um, and magazines really had an approach of making women feel rubbish... And in the March issue, I would do here are eleven things that you are doing wrong with your makeup, and here are some things you can buy to make that better. Here are six reasons your blowjob isn't good enough, and here are six reasons to make it better. And then in the in the April issue, you open it again. And it's like, oh no, your blowjob's still not good enough. Here's another ten reasons. And so you have to buy the magazine again and again and again because otherwise you're never going to give a good blowjob or do good makeup, right? Um, and I think women women got sick of that uh you know once you got through the mid all my team are like oh, I she saying, about jobs. I, I think we got through the naughties and we went no i'm not reading that shit anymore like you don't get to do that to me and i think that was what we were doing that was special we were t- tapping into that emotional thing that said i want to have conversations where you don't make me feel bad about myself to have the conversation first i want to feel good about myself after i read it
0: that's great yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was listening to a word about growth and obviously you grew very, very fast but I think it's a, it's a fine balance, right? For me, I want to grow but not too fast either because if you're not growing you're not providing enough opportunities in-house for great people so it's a, it's a fine balance and finding that um, growing but not too fast you began interviewing a lot of people as well as writing opinion columns um, when you were at Mamma Mia. It's it's a passion that continues. Who have been some of the most surprising people that you've interviewed?
1: Um, I interviewed Bill Gates and had forgotten my recorder and recorded the whole thing on an iPhone. <laughs> uh, and I didn't realize that till I went home. That was, uh, that was a low point. Um, um, Oh, look, the most surprising interview I have ever done, which was just the most ridiculous thing and most ridiculous assignment I've ever been sent on, was Kim Kardashian. Um, And this was to place this in the timeline of Kardashianism. Uh, This was post-sex tape, pre-knowing who Kendall was. If that sort of, yeah, gives you a sort of point in time. Um, And I, I don't know how many media folks there are here. Helen would know this world well where you show up and you get to the hotel and you check in downstairs as the journalist and they say, okay, you have got... In this case, I had 14 minutes with Kim. don't know why I couldn't have 15. Anyway, 14 minutes and then they get one minute, they get rid of you and they get the next person is and she does 100 interviews. Um, I had to sign a disclaimer that I wouldn't ask about Kanye, that I wouldn't ask about this. and I, had to, I couldn't ask about anything interesting. Um, and at the time, she was promoting some... Uh, clothing or something she was promoting something who knows uh, and I remember I got up there and I was chatting to the PR chicks who were out the front and the marketing team they were great like really good group of Aussie um, women who were doing the PR at this end and we were having a conversation and I would have been 25 26 at the time and um, uh, one of the uh, as Kim came out of the room and she's so little uh, you know, they have that thing about celebrities where they feel larger than life and then you meet them and you're like, you're a tiny person. Um, and she walked out and she sort of went, oh, hi. And then she looked at and she goes, I love your boots. And I was, I just didn't think, I was like, yeah, they were 50 bucks from Ruby Shoes. Like, and then I was like, oh, she, she can buy good boots. Can't, she's not so fast on the price. And then we sat down, we did this interview and she has the most phenomenal eye contact of anyone I have ever met in my entire life and she like she looked at me like this and didn't blink and didn't and it was like when you were a little kid and used to play those games where you're like who will blink first and I was like <laughs> she honestly I don't think she blinked for 14 minutes and we had this vapid conversation about nothing and it was awful but she was so pleasant and so friendly and uh, I don't remember what we talked about and then I just ran away at the end in my cheap boots <laughs>
0: So what was the best or biggest surprise interview you did where it actually turned out very different? it okay, really... right, actually turned out well.
1: That's a better, that's a better no, one to no, talk about. No, with. I'm
0: sure they all turned out well. But <laughs> in terms of what was the biggest surprise, positive surprise?
1: Um, well, that's a really good question. Um, I'm trying to think through lots of different interviews. Um, I spent some time... So I, I do this podcast called The Briefing Podcast and I host the weekend show, which is just the fun show. where You don't have to talk about the news. You just interview someone really interesting. And the week that Grace Tame won Australian of the Year, we had her on that weekend. Um, so it was, it was very early. She was really new to the media. She, had, um, she didn't think she was going to win. Um, no one thought she was going to win. It was a real shock. And so it was, it was a very new world for her, suddenly doing all this press. Um, And I always say at the beginning of that interview, this is not a gotcha interview, I'm not Lee Sales on 7.30, that's not what this is about. My job is to tell your story in a way that's going to be interesting and engaging. I'm not out to get you, so if I do ask a question that makes you uncomfortable, you just tell me and we will get rid of it. Like, that's not what we're about. And um, I reckon, I won't say what it was, but I reckon I've interviewed 400 people for that ish for that podcast now. She's the only one who's ever taken that card and said, Don't ask me that. I don't want that in there. And I remember just thinking, it was less about the question, it, it was more of what extraordinary power and sense of self when this is your first week with the national media staring at you. To have that kind of presence of mind and sense of self to go, no, I don't want that, and I've never had anyone else do it.
0: Oh, fascinating! So you're a mom of a young boy, which I said earlier. Uh, you write and speak mostly around gender issues. Uh, tell me about how the way you work is important uh, role modelling for him.
1: Yeah, I think it's important role modelling for my little boy because. I do work, and I prioritise my work, and I care about my work. I don't prioritise my work over him, but it is one of my many priorities along with him. Um, And I think, importantly, I have a a male partner who is doing, I I think, even more important role modelling, um, which is role modelling a father who works and spends a lot of time with his child and raising his child. Um, I was giving a speech earlier this morning about women's economic security, and I was pulling some data for it, and there's a... There's some work that's been done that shows that the single greatest indicator of a child's success outside of being born, in, born into poverty is how much time they spend with their father in the first eight years of life. Um, and most kids, not all, most kids spend more time with a female carer or parent in that period. Um, and I find that really interesting. That really matters to me. Um, and I want my son to see that mum goes to work and that work is important and that mum cares about that as well Um, because one day he's going to be in the workforce working with women. Who knows? He might live with a woman or be married to a woman one day. I don't know. But I want him to go into the world as a respectful person who recognises everyone has needs um, and everyone has desires and wants and priorities that are not him, including his mum.
0: Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. Has the pandemic changed the way families share work, do you think?
1: My family shares work or other families share
0: I <laughs> think in general.
1: Mm. Um, the pandemic's definitely changed the way we share work, uh, but ha- perhaps not in the way you might expect. Um, I think, uh, you know, certainly the positives are obvious, um, what we've already talked about, um, the flexibility that I think the pandemic has afforded us, the the kind of presenteeism, the idea of unless you're in the office and I can see you, you're not working, I think moving past that has really helped and will really help women in particular. Um, But for the most part, I think the changes around work and the pandemic have been bad for women. Um, uh, Women were the first ones out of jobs in Australia when the pandemic first hit, particularly poorer women and women of colour. Interestingly, women were the first ones back into work after as soon as lockdowns were over but a lot of those women took more insecure work uh lower paid work and more part-time work um and because of that women's jobs have just become more precarious uh, because of the pandemic and I think there's also the labor we don't talk about enough right which is the labor we don't pay for um uh, so much work, and you know there'll be parents in the room now, and, and people who were who were living with young children during the pandemic. Like homeschooling was shit. <laughs> like it was an emotional time for everybody. uh It was a huge workload, and also supporting you know young people or children who were trying to figure out this scary thing that's happening globally. It was a huge amount of work, and. I think we like to paint this picture that the average Australian household looked like parents came home from work and there was this flexibility and they did it as a team. The data shows the opposite. The data shows that women's unpaid work went up by 80% and men's did by 15%. A lot, there were a lot of dads who went home and went into the study and closed the door. And mum was at the kitchen table doing everything. Um, that was not every household um, absolutely not. That wasn't my household. Thank God. Um, uh, and there are, I don't want to discount the fact that there are some incredible men who got their families through this pandemic, but the data tells us on the whole, that wasn't mostly what was happening.
0: Interesting. Okay. In the, in the spirit of time, I'm moving on a little bit. You've co-authored a book about how work and relationships are changing as we emerge uh, from the pandemic. What do we know about how workplaces have changed and what's likely to be permanent and transient about the nature of work?
1: Um, wow, great question. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm working with Helen and DJ at Future Women. These days we're sometimes in and out of, the, uh, in, in and out of your fine premises uh, in multiple cities. Um, and Future Women is an incredible brand that's doing work in the gender equality space. We work with women in leadership. Uh, we work with men on how to overcome unconscious bias and how to be contributors to gender equality. And we work with workplaces to talk to them about the employment of women and how they can be doing better. And we got bored and locked down, so we wrote some books, which was silly. Uh, It's hard to do that. Uh, One of the books we wrote was Work, Love, Body, which was released last year. And it's three different women's uh, very well-researched perspectives on how women's lives in Australia will change Uh, beyond lockdowns Um, and one of the chapters focuses exclusively on work and how workplaces will change Um, there's some exciting stuff in there and there's some scary stuff in there Uh, there's certainly some positives I think in that um, we're finding uh, the data is telling us that people feel more comfortable bringing their whole self to work which I think is a wonderful thing. Uh, And I think that came from a lot of us sitting there on a Zoom call, right, and being like, oh, look, that's Ben's cat and that's so-and-so's kid. And, you know, you did did start to get that sense of people as whole people and what they were outside of work and what their home life was like outside of work. And I think that was a huge positive. I do think flexible work is something that will stay. Um, And I think that sort of disruption to the this is the way we've always done it, we have to be in the office... Uh, sort of view, um, I think that's changed for good. I don't think we're going back and I think that will ultimately be really good for women. Um, But there are also some real negatives. Um, And they're hard to equate because sometimes it sort of pushes on both sides of the equation. Uh, But women suffer from not being seen in workplaces, particularly young women um, who are graduates or in the first few years of their careers. If they're not physically seen by superiors who are often going to be men, Um, they don't get the same opportunities and it's hard to be seen and make yourself seen to someone who's not your immediate boss if you're on a Zoom call. Um, So there are definitely challenges there. And I think the current economy presents... um, some enormous scary stuff, you know, uh, when we think about what the future holds and uh, what's going to happen if inflation keeps going upwards and what that means about cost of living and what that means about the cost of childcare and what that means about families saying, is it worth mum going to work if childcare's that expensive, you know, and making some decisions that set us backwards. Um, I think there are definitely things to be scared about. But on the other hand... I've, done, I've used more than two hands, sorry. Uh, on the, there are... Uh, yeah, sorry, on the other foot. Um, I think there are exciting things. You know, a- Australia has the largest part-time female workforce in the OECD. More women work part-time in Australia than any other OECD country. Um, that's a massive untapped market. We're talking about labour shortages and skill shortages. There are all these women who... They're not unemployed... They are simply not participating in work. And I think programs like some of the work we're doing at Future Women and working with governments as well, programs that can incentivise those women to consider work again, um, investing in childcare, investing in paid parental leave, so work is attractive for them. There are solutions to our workforce problem that are right here if we want to do the work.
0: I agree. Um, I I have a comment on the authenticity and bringing your whole self. You know, it's something that we've always talked about as work club where as a team member you you're encouraged to bring all of yourself and not leave anything at the door so when you arrive you're the same person as when you uh, you know before you walk through the door And, and that authenticity there's been a lot of talk about that and it's almost I'm just sort of conceptually thinking sometimes that authenticity can become almost too much you know if somebody have got no filter in telling Someone else, I don't like you. You know, I don't like what you're saying. Um, so there's a balance also of going too far mm-hmm. where you've got to have empathy and manners and be respectful to other people too, yeah. right? So it's... it's We've got to be careful it doesn't go too far as well.
1: Yeah. No, I think that's a really good point. Um, there's a line, right, where that is professionalism. Yeah. And also getting along with colleagues and being able to work with clients. Um, and... Yeah, I do, think, I do think that is a hard line to manage. And I think particularly for um, not so much my generation, but the generation coming through, that sort of Gen Z generation where you've lived your life on social media and you've lived your life being told you should share everything, um, I think that's particularly hard to navigate when you, when you start working.
0: Yeah, and when, when you want something, you want it now, right? And if it's going to take a month or... 12 months, that doesn't work either. That's
1: not Gen Z, that's everyone. <laughs> yeah. We all want everything now.
0: Yeah, maybe. Um, okay, let's move on from that one. If you're okay, you, you you got on well a few years ago. Are you okay talking about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Um, can you share a bit about your journey to date?
1: Uh, yes. Um, so about uh, four and a half, getting moving towards five years ago, Um, I, very unexpectedly, I was mostly feeling very well at the time, was diagnosed with a rare kind of brain tumour. It was a massive shock. Um, The only symptom I had at the time that I realised was that I'd missed a period, so I would not have, in a million years, put those two things together. Um, But clever doctors did, so I was really, I was genuinely very lucky um, that they put that together and put that together quickly. and so I had uh, brain surgery in January of 2018. Um, and then little bugger grew back straight away. And I had brain surgery again in um, September of 2018. And then it grew back straight away. Um, and then I did uh, eight weeks of radiation in um, 2019. And uh, since then, uh, Knock on wood, Um, I haven't had any tumour growth, but I have had to adjust... Oh, I didn't do it, but thank you. Um, (laughs) um, uh, But since then, I have had to learn to adjust to uh, what is an enormous amount of damage that's been done to my brain, um, which means that there's a huge amount of functions my body's not capable of anymore, um, which means adjusting to being disabled and uh, living with chronic illness and um, quite life-threatening chronic illness some of the time, so... Yeah, things things looked very different different for me for a couple of years, especially sort of 2018, 2019, and then the world closed down. <laughs> uh, so that was pretty weird couple of years. And so for me, actually, this it's probably been 2022 is the first year I've really felt somewhere like who I used to be. Oh,
0: that's great. Yeah. So how are you working now? How how, how did that, I mean, that must have impacted your work a lot, of course, during that period. And and how do you work now? How do you, what's changed?
1: Yeah, uh, lots of things have changed. Oh, it's weird because Helen's, my boss is here. I'm going to say nice things about her, which is even worse because people are going to think I'm sucking up, but it's true. Um, uh, So I was working as a freelancer um, when I got diagnosed um, and at the time I'd sort of gone, I'm ready to go back and do something... um, more full-time again. Like I was I was a bit sick of freelancing. I was a bit over the, the grind of it at that point. Um, and part of being a freelance columnist is you sort of mind your life for content every week. You have to think of something to say and you start telling everything about your life to the world and after a while it gets old. Um, and I was chatting to um, one of the major media companies in Australia about a job and I was chatting to Helen about Future Women. And um, we'd been having these conversations for a couple of months. I hadn't told Helen I was talking to another one. Uh, I hadn't told them I was talking to Helen, um, as you do. Uh, we were having some really good conversations that were quite developed at both, at both ends and I was sort of down to making final decision when, when this came literally out of the blue. Like, uh, you know, I've got fo- photos of me at cocktail parties the day before we found out. Like, it just, we just didn't know it was coming. Um, and so a couple of days after I found out, when I was still in a lot of shock, um, I had to call uh, the person I was talking to, this, this other media company, and they were really kind and they just said, um, you know, we wish you all the best, and, you know, and they had to go fill that job. Um, and I called Helen and Helen said, well, when will you be better? <laughs> um, and I was like, I don't know, your brain tumors is terrifying. Um, and she said, okay, well, you deal with that and you call me when you're better. And um, I waited five weeks after brain surgery and I called Helen on the Monday, remember? And said, I feel a bit better today. (laughs) Um, And I had a contract on the Friday. Um, And I think that was a real punt because I was not well. um, And and as recovered as I thought I was, I look at photos now and I look like a ghost. And, um, you know, within a few months later I was having surgery again and it was a bigger surgery and it was craniotomy and they cut my head open from there to there. And um, I needed another 12 weeks off and... Work looked different for a while, and I think that was really hard for someone who really defines themselves by their work and their output, and so work had to change, I think. Um, uh, and uh, I think I, I worked part-time for quite a while. I worked very flexibly. Helen and the team were amazing. Like, I would take naps in the middle of the day for a while because brain surgery makes you very tired for sometimes two years. Um, and it just, it took a lot of getting it on top of it, but I think over time started working more and more like I used to, but finding workarounds. Um, and, uh, you know, I am so fortunate in the team that I work with, and I think it speaks to having great colleagues or great people around you where you are, where you work. You know, I have I have a team member in Melbourne, um, Melissa, who before every meeting we have together and after every meeting writes me a dot point summary of what's coming up and the key links that I need and information that I might have forgotten because she knows I have memory loss. Um and I have team members who are always looking out for me, down to the fact that like there are team members on watch at major events to make sure I don't overdo it. Um, and to me that speaks to that incredible power of, of colleagues and, and working with great people because, as you say, we call it work, but it, it isn't eight hours a day. It's more than that. And most of us, I would like to think the vast majority of us do work that we care about um, and work with people we really care about. Um, and I, like, I, I could not do my job without the people around me who are, who make it possible for me to do my job.
0: But it also sounds like a, a important distraction, maybe almost during that period as well. To oh, to, sure. To be able to do something. Like...
1: Oh, I th- you know, I, I, there, there will... Statistically, there have to be people in this room who have been chronically ill or very um, seriously unwell. Uh, it's boring. It's so boring. And all anyone asks you is how you are. And then you have to be like, oh, it's really complicated. Okay. And you start and then it takes you 15 minutes to explain how you are. And you know they're bored by the end of it, but you still feel like you've got to do it. And you're bored. Um, There's nothing more boring than my health. (laughs) Um, uh, I'm so sick to death of it. And you're just desperate to do something useful again and to prove to yourself you can do something useful again and i think um, work is often that reminder because your family is so swept up in it the work is often that reminder of there is a world out there where i can just not be the sick person for a while
0: yeah. makes sense tell me about a concept which i'm quite fascinated about also the limit limit sorry about the danish here <laughs> liminal time
1: yeah. and
0: how it impacted you during your health journey
1: yeah I wouldn't have had words for this, I think, un- until we wrote um, Work, Love, Body with, with Future Women and the concept came up in there around the pandemic and I went, I've done that. <laughs> um, so liminal time refers to a time of flux where you've left the place that you were in but you haven't arrived at the place that you will end up. And I don't mean like in a car. I mean conceptually. Um, uh, so anyone, anyone in the room who's been pregnant knows about that time, right? Those final weeks of pregnancy when you're like, okay, I've done pregnancy, I'm ready to do parenting, but it hasn't happened yet, and I'm just stuck in this this weird liminal space. Um, It's something a lot of students experience when they finish year 12 but haven't started. Whatever job or study they're going to do next, there's this sort of in-between period of, like, I'm not a school student anymore, but I'm also not whatever I'm going to be next. Um, And that's what everyone has experienced and perhaps still is experiencing through the pandemic, right, which is liminal time, Um, this sense of, I am doing this thing now that is a period of flux and eventually I will end up somewhere new, but I don't know when it's going to be. And I think that's the hardest bit, is you know that there's this this version of a new normal that you're getting to, but you don't know what it's going to look like and you don't know when you're going to get there. And that that is what being sick is, um, because you never know how long it's going to last. You never know how long you're going to feel bad. You never know if there's some drug that they're suddenly going to give you and it's going to solve all the weird feelings you're having, I've put that hope on every drug and I take about 17 of them every day now and none of them have done that, Um, you just, you're sort of in this weird sense of being trapped in time and I think I only started to feel genuinely better from a mental health perspective when I stopped waiting for the next bit to begin and I just went, I've got to enjoy the bit I've got now because my brain can't solve this problem. Um, and I think that's what a lot of us have started to do through, through the pandemic is sort of go, okay, life can't actually be on hold for forever. There has to be some new way of doing things. Yeah.
0: And, and from a global perspective also, I, I feel like this liminal time is almost a constant going forward, you know, this constant chains and not knowing and having to react in real time almost, I think. Something I think a lot about is how do you structure a business in such a way that it allows frontline, you know, every person in the business to make decisions quick and in real time yeah. and not having to go through a structure that just delays everything. Yeah. Because I think the world we are, we're in and we continue to move, to move forward in is, is almost liminal, you know, at all times. So I'm not sure it's just just a period. I think it's almost a constant. Yeah. Um, so how has facing death changed the way you think about life and relationships? <laughs> I think that's a... Wow.
1: Um, I mean, yes, it has. Um, yes. <laughs> I promise this is the first time I've thought about it. Um, no, it's definitely, it's definitely changed. It, I mean, it's changed a huge amount of things because, um, uh, you know, I, I, every, human beings are the only species that live like we're not going to die. Right? animals don't do that um, animals live a very functional life whereas human beings just act like that's not going to happen and it's a shock when it enters our, our world that someone in our life is sick or someone's existence is about to end and, and yet it's the only certain thing um, and I was certainly one of those people, and I just had never—I just had never really thought much, I, I think, about um, the fact that my own life was finite. I knew that, but I sort of didn't really think about it.
0: I'm still going to try and hack it, though. You know, <laughs> we're working on biohacks and all kinds of things. You so come up, up with something, okay? Yeah, that'd yeah, be good. Yeah,
1: you know. um, I appreciate that. Keep me posted. Um, yeah, I don't—I don't really know what I've learned from it. I think—I think it's changed a few things. I think I am. Um, more conscious that everyone I meet and everyone I work with has something going on that I don't know about. And that sounds obvious, but I don't think that was something I thought about very much day to day. And when there was a staff member who was not getting the job done or my kid was annoying me or my mum was behaving in a certain way, you know, I'd get frustrated and I didn't spend a lot of time trying to understand and think about what might be happening for them that I had no idea about. Um, I think it's also really changed the way I think about mental health and physical health because the la- I reckon I've gone through, in terms of pain and in terms of how your body changes, I reckon I've been through close to as hard as it gets the last five years, um, and the mental health bit was harder. Like, the, the, the mental health bit was harder. And so I think that has changed the way I think about our mental illness in a big way um, because I think all of us could be quite... Uh, we, even friends of mine who have serious mental illness would make comments like, "But what you're going through is so much more serious." And you're like, "Well, not really, because the hardest bit was the bit you're doing." Um, uh, so I think it, it, I've probably made some shifts in that in that regard too.
0: You, you hear that often with people, you know, on the mental side. That once you have experienced it yourself, you have a lot of empathy yeah. why people are, well, you know, struggling. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, what have you learned about your own capacity for resilience? We'll, we'll end up as being the last question on, on Gosh, um, Resilience. Um,
1: I think I think I have come to terms with the fact that resilience does not mean the absence of fear uh, because I spent a lot of time I spend a, I, I get called brave a lot. And if you had spent any time with me in the few months before my first surgery, I was the definition of not brave. Like my husband was worried I was gonna walk out of there and not do it on the day. Uh, I'm pretty sure I only did it because I was very, very high on their (laughs) lovely doctor drugs. Uh, but, I, like, I was t- absolutely terrified. And I think I really went, well, no, I'm not a brave person because I'm the scared person. And so how do you be the resilient person if you're the scared person? And I think uh, that, that understanding that uh, genuine bravery is not not being scared, that's stupid. Because if you're not scared of having brain surgery, that's a bit silly. Uh, it's a scary thing to do. Uh, it is being scared and doing it anyway because you know that you have to. Um, And I, I mean, it's a pretty easy, it was a pretty easy equation when I look back on it now, you know, you have the surgery and you've got a very good shot at saving your life or you don't have the surgery and you will die in the next six months. Like, it seems really easy equation, but it it didn't feel easy for me. It felt really, really hard and really scary. Um, And I think I, I think I've definitely sort of shifted my, shifted my view around what resilience looks like. um, And... Whether or not, I think, I think, having gone through hardship and choosing to continue, not being someone who can continue, and saying none of that touched the surface, but choosing to continue, despite how hard something was, I think, is what is really impressive.
0: Thank you, Thank I you. Mean, There's, there's so many great chat. Yeah. There's so many pieces in there that could be Florence Guilds on its own. Just resilience as a topic, I think, is just fascinating and we could talk about it for hours. Thank you for being wonderful, brave and inspiring and um, sharing what you've shared. Uh, it, it's been a pleasure having you here. And thank you. Explore the Florence Guild podcast with the best talent from Australia and across the world. You can subscribe and rate this podcast on iTunes. For more information on Florence Guild, visit FlorenceGuild.com.